0: You've got 10 seconds. The countdown going on right now. I'm sorry. I'm not doing it the wrong way. This is Play-By-Play Play Cast, the world's number one sports media podcast. Wait, what? Okay. Nobody's fact-checking it. Just keep going. Here we go. Who the hell is Happy Gilmore? Got all
1: camera right john sure i did all right because the red light was not on
0: the podcast about play-by-play broadcasters for play-by-play broadcasters hosted by a play-by-play broadcaster
1: oh you can stick me in some kind of italian boat because that one is gondola
0: now from new york really all the big ones are from new york your host joe godet it's still joel yeah he will
1: not be able to see very well cotton
0: uh, welcome back into another episode of Play by Play Cast. It is the podcast about play by play broadcasters for play by play broadcasters, hosted by one, a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, stories, process, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play by play announcers in the business. My name is Joel Godet, J G O D E T T at BSU.edu. I think I spelled that right. Uh, J-G-O-D-E-T-T at B-S-U dot E-D-U is my email address if you want to get in touch, or you can find the podcast on the Twitter at pxpcast. I'm at Joel Godet as well. Our guest today comes from the ranks of minor league baseball with a season just completed. He is the voice of the Albuquerque Isotopes. Before that, uh, was part of the Los Angeles Dodgers radio network as their network reporter, and before that was the host... Uh, was the play-by-play broadcaster of the Modesto Nuts. And before that, he was a newspaper reporter uh, covering all things Oakland and Bay Area uh, for a decade. His name is Josh Sushan, spelled, as he will tell you at the end of the uh, podcast, uh, spelled, uh, you know, normally, classic uh, Sushan. Sushan? Sushan. Spelled like the classic Sushan. It's S-U-C-H-O-N. Josh Sushan. I, I used to have... Like, when I was a kid, my, my shh and my ch were, like, tough and slurred. Like, I, I went to, like, speech therapy for a little while when I was a kid. Like, had to do, like, Cheerio crushes on the roof of my mouth to, like, control that stuff. I don't know what I would have done if I had Sushan. Josh Sushan is our guest this week. On PXPCast. Good conversation diving into, we talked last week a little bit about uh, writing and how that impacts uh, a play-by-play broadcaster with Gary Hahn from North Carolina State. Uh, We dive into that a ton more, obviously, with Josh and his writing background, how that impacted him as a play-by-play announcer. um, Both in terms of physically being able to write well, but also uh, the experiences he had as a writer ...and how that carried over into being a broadcaster... ...and it's more than you might think... ...especially with the path that he has been on... uh, ...throughout his career. We start, though, talking about the impact that we have... ...as play-by-play announcers... ...because as you listened to this... ...last night, or yesterday afternoon... ...was Marty Brenneman's final broadcast... ...with the Cincinnati Reds. And... ...like, the game was virtually all about Marty... ...in some respects... Um, you know, I read a tweet from Dan Horde, uh friend of the pod, Cincinnati Bengals, UC broadcaster, that, you know, it's the last home game of the regular season. The Reds are totally out of it, but traffic is at a crawl around Great American ballpark, and it was people wanted to be in attendance for the final game uh, that Marty Brenneman would broadcast. Uh, and, you know, he you can find it online. There's about an eight minute video of his end of the broadcast before he sends it uh, back to Tommy Thrall and he does his farewells and his goodbyes and jeff brantley does the same to him and uh, he talks about you know he's not a cincinnatian by trade but is a cincinnatian now and remembers the exact moment when the city he felt took him in as one of its own and uh now will be a cincinnatian forever and how much the city means to him uh and conversely uh you get the, He didn't really talk about it, but you get the sense of how much he means to the city. Uh, and, and it reminds you that in this line of work and in this business, what we do can be so impactful, meaningful, powerful to so many people. And it's always that remembrance to take that part of the job very seriously. Because we're just in a booth talking about sports and describing what we see. Um, but in a lot of ways it means a lot to a lot of different people and it means a lot of different things so never forget that uh, that awesome responsibility and that awesome power that we all yield and have Uh, so that's where we started talking with Josh Sushan because we recorded this yesterday uh, as Marty was broadcasting his final game so with that being said let's dive into our conversation about baseball broadcasting writing and more with Josh Sushan The voice of the Albuquerque Isotopes here on PXPCast. We are recording this on the last day of Marty Brenneman's broadcasting career. So uh, with that in mind, uh, I guess tell me a little bit about who influenced your play-by-play background, style, beliefs, uh, anything. Who did you grow up with saying, that's my guy? Who was kind of your Marty Brenneman, as we've heard people talk about this week?
1: Well, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, so my influences are the iconic broadcasters from the Bay Area. That would be Bill King, Lon Simmons, and Hank Greenwald. Especially Bill King. He's probably the top of those three because King did the A's, he did the Raiders, he did the Warriors. It's actually crazy. There was about a four- to five-year stretch where he did all three teams. And when you think about how much those three sports overlap, it is astonishing to me (laughs) that he could keep up his energy level and that he could do that. Especially at a time when you were flying commercial almost everywhere, that he could remember who was on what team. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, Um, but it goes to show his his talent and his energy level and his uh, diverse skill set. So those are the main three, and you know, all three of them came from different parts of the country. And you know, the the thing that stood out about them is that at the biggest moments they were at their best, but they were also not afraid to compliment the other team they were not over the top homers you knew that they wanted the local team to win but they were definitely not over the top homers at all they all came from the belief that we're there to call a game and that not everybody who's listening may be a fan of this team so we they didn't call it down the middle like a national broadcast but they you, you could tell that there was a sophistication to their broadcast. And with Bill, it was a vocabulary lesson. It was an English lesson every night. And, um, you know, they didn't have too many catchphrases. Bill King had Holy Toledo, Lon Simmons, home run call was, you can tell it goodbye. Um, can't even think about it, about a phrase that, that Hank Greenwald might've had, although I'm sure that he had plenty. So those are the ones who really set the tone for me. And I ended up, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of things that I say and I do and I don't even realize it, and it's because just growing up I heard it. I learned it through osmosis.
0: Uh, how does it make you think, or what does it make you think about when you see the... I mean, when you think about the impact that those guys had on you, but then you see the outpouring of fans and, um, I don't know, just people in general about the impact that a guy like Marty had on them uh, and what that means for what our role is. Um, How does that strike you as a broadcaster?
1: Well, the first thing that strikes me is I wonder if it's going to be the same thing 30 years from now. Because Mm -hmm. I don't know if people are going to be listening to the radio as much 30 years from now as they did when Marty was starting. And when I was listening to Bill King and Lon Simmons and Hank Greenwald, that so much of it was the theater of the mind that you couldn't see. All you could do was hear because not every game was on television back then. So if you wanted to keep up with your team, you had it on the radio in the background. You had it on in the living room. You had it on in your bedroom. Whereas now you're going to have the television on in those instances. So that's my first thought is how much of this is changing and how much were those radio legends becoming a part of our lives simply because there was very little television. And so that's the first thing. But the next thing is because of that – you went to bed listening to them. You were in your car listening to them. You were in your kitchen listening to them. You were in the backyard listening to them. Like their voices were the soundtrack of your summer. And especially since you didn't have television to connect, that was your means of connecting was, was through the radio. And I think that's why all of those guys, whether it's Marty in Cincinnati or whether it's Jerry Coleman and Ted Leitner in San Diego, or whether it's Vin Scully in Los Angeles, Vin toward the end of his career was known for television, but really Vin became a legend because of radio, because the Dodgers moved from Brooklyn to Los Angeles. They're playing in the L.A. Memorial Coliseum, which is football that seats 80,000, 90,000. People can barely see what's happening. People may not know the background of who these major leaguers are, and that was when transistor radios became a thing, and you took your transistor radio to the ballpark, and you listened to Vin as you watched this game from a football stadium and that's originally why Vin became such a legend. Mm. But I remember going to games with my dad in Oakland and he would bring a transistor radio. And I remember saying like, why do we need to listen to him? We can just watch. (laughs) And my dad would explain how this person's going to tell you more. He's going to give you more background and more detail. And, um, and so, you know, you go to a ballpark. Now there's a handful of people who might be listening on transistor radios and, even now it's hard because of the delay it's it's hard. some people might listen through their phone or they might listen through the internet but that's going to be on a delay you're not going to hear it in real time so i wonder how much the the radio generation stars are going to continue going forward
0: you always wanted to do play by play though that was kind of your career goal from the outset
1: yeah i got sidetracked but yeah this is what i always wanted to do
0: um what was the allure that kept pulling you back? I know you did a decade in the newspaper industry. Um, what did that not satiate where you said, no, like ultimately I need a microphone in front of me and I, I want to be able to describe what I see, not write about it uh, after the fact?
1: Well, there's a number of reasons why I transitioned. Um, so my first job out of college was with the Watertown Indians and in the New York Penn League, that short season ball. That team is now gone. That team moved to Staten Island. And I remember thinking that summer, like, this is what I want to do. This, this is it. This is, this is my path. This is, this is what I want to do. And then I go home to Northern California and I'm looking for my next job in minor league baseball because that was just a seasonal job. And I was having a really hard time finding one, <laughs> finding the next job. And to be honest, I, like looking back on it now, I don't know why I just didn't contact that team again and say, hey, can I come spend the summer with you again? I know it's <laughs> only summer work, but like I, I kind of wonder why I didn't do that. Maybe I was just really transfixed on having a full-time job as opposed to a, a three-month part-time job and didn't want to go back and forth between upstate New York and uh, the Bay Area. So while I'm continuing to look for another job in minor league baseball and being very unsuccessful at it, I needed something else to do because I'm finished with college and I'm living back at my dad's place and trying to figure out what I'm going to do. And so I I started working for a newspaper just, just because it was something to do while I was looking for what I ultimately wanted to do. And so doing one or two stories a week turned into doing three or four stories a week. And that turned into part-time and that turned into a full-time job. And then that turned into a full-time job covering the giants. And then that turned into a full-time job covering the A's and traveling around the country. And the next thing you know, it's in 10 years and I, I'm, Very grateful for those 10 years of the Oakland Tribune. I think I'm a better broadcaster now because I spent that time as a newspaper reporter. But that was also a time when I left when the newspaper industry was undergoing radical changes. Newspapers were folding left and right. They were merging. They were – it was a dying industry. And I knew that my time might be limited, that I might be looking for a job sooner than later if I stuck with this industry. And I always wanted to get back to what I was originally wanting to do. And I kind of lucked out with the first job that I got coming, leaving newspapers, going to the Oakland Tribune. I went to the Modesto Nuts. And if I hadn't gotten that job, it's not like I was going to quit my newspaper job and hope for the best. If I had not gotten that job with the Modesto Nuts, I probably would have stayed in the newspaper industry. Who knows? I might still be there to this day. So it was, it was just kind of luck that there happened to be a team that was fairly close to where I was from. I later found out I didn't get the job because of my broadcasting skills, because I basically had no broadcasting skills. It had been 10 years since I'd done anything. I got the job because the program director thought that I knew a lot about baseball, that whatever broadcasting shortcomings I had would be lessened by just my overall knowledge. He thought that my my contacts in the journalism world, the broadcasting world, would help the radio station. It was very unique in that I was not hired by the team. I was hired by the radio station, which is almost unheard of in minor league ball. And I also found out later that the program director was also an afternoon host. And whenever he would call me to be a guest, I said yes, and I would come on his program instead of being like this big-time newspaper guy who's going to blow off the small station Modesto. I said yes, and I went on the air, and that meant a lot to him, that I did not big league him. So those are the reasons why I got the job. It had nothing to do with my broadcasting skills whatsoever. Although there's a lot to be like learned from that last job. Uh Yeah, you know. Um, and, I, you know, I just said yes because someone calls the way that you called me and asked me if I wanted to join your podcast. Yeah, who yeah. am I? You know, I know what it's like to ask somebody for an interview, and I know what it's like to ask someone to be a guest on a radio show or to be a guest on a podcast. So mm-hmm. I, I'm going to say yes because it's professional courtesy, but I also think that it's a way of of – I think you always learn every time you're on the air, and I think that uh, that it's part of just being a good person and helping other people out. But also, it's a chance to to expand your brand, whether your brand is yourself or whether your brand is the newspaper. Or what, I mean, there's a lot of reasons. There's certainly sometimes when you just don't have the time to say yes to every opportunity. Sure. But I think that it's a, you know that you should do as many as you can.
0: Um, how old were you at that point when you went to Modesto?
1: Oh, let's see. Good question. Okay. So that was start of, that was uh, the start of the 2007 season. And so I was 30, I was born in 73. So I was, I would have turned 34 that year. So I was 33 going on 34. Okay. And I can also, and I can also tell you that I, that I was single. I had no kids. And I remember thinking that if I'm ever going to make this change to go back to broadcasting. It's got to be brief. Yeah, it's, it's kind of now or never, because I know that I would not have been able to do that if I was married with kids or if I had some mortgage payment or if I was going to try and commute or whatever. I I, I knew that I was kind of starting over and that I was going to have to move multiple times to get ultimately to where I wanted to be. So yeah, it was kind of a now or never time, but I, I felt like I was still young enough to do it.
0: How crazy was that in, in that moment to to not just do it at that time, but you I mean you just acknowledged, hey, I'm going to have to move multiple times to... To hit reset on a career at 34, um, knowing that like at 35, I'm not going to be back in the major leagues most likely. I'm leaving covering the A's. Um, what was that processing like in your mind? Um, and, and how hard was it to, to ready yourself for, hey, I'm going to go back to where I was 10 years ago to build myself back up because that's actually what I want to be and, it, and it's going to get me where I want to go?
1: Professionally? it wasn't that difficult. I found the challenge exhilarating. I was happy because of what I was actually doing for the job. Personally, it was not easy at mm-hmm. all. And, and, and I think that still remains the case to this day because I look back on that time in Modesto I was happiest during the three hours that I was broadcasting baseball. The other 21 hours was difficult. I mean, I went from living in this really cool house in San Francisco with these great friends and we had a view of the Pacific ocean and a view of the golden gate bridge from the balcony. And we had these cool parties and, and I flew on United and I was able to get all those bonuses that you get when you travel a lot, you got frequent flyer miles and you get hotel points so that you can go on vacations that are cheaper and, and you stay at nice hotels and you get uh, reimbursed for the meals that you eat, and then you go to the minor leagues, and I'm sharing a room at the Lamplighter Inn, and I'm on a bus, and I'm making, not that I was making great money at the Oakland Tribune, I was not, but I was making even less money when I went to Modesto. And I remember just thinking, I, I remember I was like, I, I need money. Like, what am I going to do? How am I going to survive financially? I remember like selling my bottle head collection for like a hundred dollars just because I felt like That's uh, I could buy groceries yeah. with, that, with that. Yeah. With that hundred dollars. <laughs> and I remember just thinking like, okay, I'm not allowed to golf anymore. There's just like certain things that I would do that I felt like, yeah, you can't golf anymore. Like there's just, you know, like you, you can't go on, you're not going on a vacation for a while because you, I don't know how far this money's going to go, but I need to like, I, I don't want to find out. Like I, I need to, um, I need to really stretch things as much as I can. So that was the hard part, the, the 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 broadcasting part. I was learning something every day, and so that that part wasn't difficult. That part was fun, and I made a bunch of mistakes, which we all do, and I still make mistakes to this day. But I remember just thinking, like every day, I'm figuring this out a little bit more. I'm getting a better idea of. How you prep, how you tell a story, how you describe a blowout, how you describe a close game, all, all those different things I remember learning and just being really excited because every day it was i was I was teaching myself something
0: Well, let me ask you about prep a little bit because um, it, if you go to your website, a lot of the, the anecdotes are like i 've never seen anybody prep like this guy in my life, um, which is one of I, I have to imagine the highest compliments that you can get, um, particularly in baseball. Uh, why do people say that, and uh, what is your regimen like that leads people to that conclusion?
1: Well, they probably say that because I don't have a great voice, so they're probably thinking <laughs> of something nice to say about me. And so maybe that's like the first thing. Um, you know, when, when, it, when it comes to prep, I, I think that comes back to my background as a journalist, is that if I'm going to do a feature story about somebody – I want to try and learn as much as I can. I want to read as much as I can about this person. I want to ask a ton of questions. I want to interview multiple people. I want to get multiple sources. You know, you don't write a feature story with one source. You write a feature story with three, four, five sources. Um, after a game, you don't file a game story with just one quote or one, or one player. You, you talk to multiple people. And so I think that that's just been ingrained in me, is that that's what you do as a journalist, is you research things. Plus I love reading. I like history. I like learning the history of things, both baseball and non-baseball. I, I, I like to read in general. So I'm constantly doing research and I don't think of it as research. I think of it as I enjoy reading and I'm curious to, to learn about this. Um, so th- that's the part that's always been ingrained in me. It, to me, it's fun. It's fun learning about a starting pitcher and where he's from. and why he's pitching tonight at isotopes park and where he is in his career, whether he's coming back from an injury or whether he was been in the major leagues and is now back down at AAA or whether he's just been moved up from A AA to AAA for the first time in his life or whatever has gone on, that, you know, what, what has led to him pitching on this mound tonight in this game. I, I find that really fun whenever we get a new player, which happens a lot at AAA, I enjoy spending a lot of time, figuring out who is this person and then asking them follow-up questions one-on-one to find out more about their background and who they are. And there's times that that does become exhausting. And what I've learned over the years is the is the save something for tomorrow, right? When, when there's 140 games in minor league baseball. I remember there was one season I did all this research about, I remember it was like November, December, and I was researching all these guys who might be playing for the isotopes. And then as it turned out, like, I don't know, like a half of them actually ended up playing for us. And, you know, the other half either got released or they got traded or they ended up at AA or something happened to them. And I remember thinking what a waste of time all of that was. And so now I think that I'm smarter about when I get our roster, I'm going to continue to pay attention to who's in the Rockies organization. But when I get our roster, I'm going to learn – what I need to learn for today's game, and then I'm going to learn what I need to learn for tomorrow's game. Instead of trying to cram everything and all of these notes into my opening day broadcast, I got 140 of these. So I will intentionally not research somebody knowing that I will do that tomorrow or next week because I've got a lot of games. And so I'm going to know a little about everybody, but then I'm going to, then I'm going to spread it out in a way that, that makes it more comparable for me and hopefully helps the broadcast as well.
0: And inevitably, somebody will do something to lead you to study
1: them that day.
0: You know, like the guy you don't know about will hit a home run. and be like, "Ah, I need to know more about him for
1: tomorrow. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, the other thing that I've gotten very good at is learning how to quickly research somebody between pitches. Yeah. And there is definitely a skill to being able to keep up with the flow of action perfectly while also being able to look up, okay, even just the basics. Where was this guy last year? When was he drafted? By what team? What college did he go to? You don't have to know everything in detail about somebody, but just have a few things. And so I I think that over time I've learned how to find out, okay, what's the most important thing for today? And now when I have time, what are the important things for tomorrow and next week?
0: Uh, How do you organize that so that your you're readily able to reference something um you're able to tell a story in a compact way that you're not rambling for 10 minutes of an inning and you you just kind of gets lost like the the way that you can take all the things that you learn about somebody and in an easily referenceable fashion i don't know if it's a binder if it's how you make your book every night um Jot your notes down to say, all right, when the time comes, this is how I'm going to tell this story, and this is the information I think is most important. And if you want to go to the newspaper route, like, here's my inverted pyramid of how I'm going to use this type of information <laughs> on air.
1: I, I wish I had a better system that would, that would make me sound, like, really uh, organized and sophisticated. <laughs> I'm trying uh, to find one,
0: too. So Yeah. Um,
1: <laughs> <right>? <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, I, I know that if I'm – I'll give you an example. I did um, – we, we had a 50-cent hot dog night. And I remember thinking, like, okay, I want to have background on the history of hot dogs and baseball. Hmm. And um, and so I did a bunch of research, and at first I was just cutting and pasting segments of articles that I found, and then I was basically um, shortening them down into bullet points. And I remembered like, stacking them in an order of where I thought would be most logical so that I could kind of go to them um at certain points and, and and even if it's just writing them in a way that is, that is conversational, but at the same time I don't want to read. I want to just be able to to look at bullet points and be able to speak it naturally while looking at these bullet points. And I did the same thing for Fourth of July and Fireworks. Like what's the history of baseball and fireworks and especially Fourth of July so that I had that information at my fingertips. And so if it's something that I think I might use over time year after year, then I'm going to print it out and I'm going to make it fairly organizable. If it's about today's starting pitcher, then a lot of it, it's just going to be, you know, we get game notes from, from the PR guys and gals in our league. And so I'm going to start with that. And then I'm going to do handwritten notes that are on there. And sometimes I just tear those out at the end and save them in a file. So that, especially if I know that pitcher might be starting against us next week, mm-hmm. I don't have to start from scratch again. I've got these same notes that that I've that I've kept. Um, And then when it comes to, like, the laptop and the computer, I'll start a game and I'll probably have, say, like 15 different windows that are open. You know, I have the out-of-town scoreboard for us and for the PCL. I'll have, you know, a baseball reference page. I'll have a page for the stay in baseball history. I'll have like a number of other things that I think I'm going to get to at some point. And the main parts of those articles I'll have highlighted and ready to go. And that page will be right at where I want to start. And then once I'm finished with that story, then I just X those boxes out. And so by the time I get to the end of the game, I'm down to like four or five windows. At the start of the game, it's a lot more windows. So that's not a great method for saving things over time but again i i do that when it's something that i know it's just for today and i'm not i'm probably not going to need it in the future
0: gotcha so uh i guess what what else um beyond a, a preparatory background um where else does the newspaper writing and the newspaper background come into uh influencing what you do on the air
1: Well, one of the most important things as a newspaper reporter is that if you write something negative, you better be there the next day. (laughs) It's very easy because as a newspaper reporter, you don't cover 162 games. You cover somewhere in the neighborhood of 120 to 140. So if you're going to write something negative, don't write something negative and then take the weekend off and now you're not accountable to those who you criticized. You better be there the next day. Now, I work for the team, so it's not like I'm criticizing the isotopes on a regular basis at all. But... Just in case I say something and a parent hears it or a girlfriend hears it or a wife hears it, um, I mean, the players hear it themselves. Um, You know, my broadcast is on in the clubhouse, it's on in the visiting clubhouse, it's on in the batting cages. It gets piped out throughout the ballpark everywhere. So in case I do say something that someone may not like, make sure that you're there. So... Whether it's walking through the clubhouse, and that's as simple as I'm walking through the clubhouse to get the starting lineup, and I'm walking through the clubhouse to get my pregame interview, or I'm walking through the clubhouse to say hello, or to just ask somebody, hey, what, what was that from yesterday? Um, or being in the dugout during batting practice, being around the cage. I mean, just basically making sure that you are visible in case somebody has a problem. And again, that's totally different when you work for a team, because it's rare that I would say anything. But just in case, that's a good that's the number one thing that comes to my mind.
0: Have you ever had a Have you ever had a player, while working for a team, come up to you and say, "Like, hey, man, that thing last night, I didn't like."
1: Yeah, there's there was a couple of times ever. There that that were pretty brief. There was there was never like a major confrontation that that occurred. Um, I'm trying to think if there's other times. You know, I'm sure there's probably other times where someone may have not been thrilled. I mean, look, we've given up a lot of home runs the last few years, and I kind of balance between explaining, okay, we lead the league in home runs allowed again for the second straight year, or that home run just set a record for most home runs that we've allowed, or we're now approaching the all-time record for most home runs allowed. So I kind of balance between explaining what's going on but also not, you know, harping on this. Um, So I'm sure there's been times that, members of our pitching staff or our pitching coach or somebody is not happy with me giving negative stats about our team. And so I try to be conscious of not doing it too much, but also still, you know, especially, you know, I put it this way. If it's a night in which you've given up three or four home runs, then I feel like, okay, it's kind of, it's kind of fair game or I'll I'll wait. Like I may not, I may not say in the first inning that the ISIS have given up 20 home runs on the last four games but if they've given up two more tonight, then I might say, okay, it's been a tough stretch for the Isotopes pitching staff. That's two more tonight. That's 22 in the last five games now, or whatever the case might be. So I just kind of look for, make sure that you say it for a reason. If it's the fifth inning and our guy's working on a two-hit shutout, now is not the time to say how many home runs we've given up in the last five <laughs> sure. games. Like, be in the moment. <laughs>
0: um, what's different about, uh, I mean, you hear about this in, in major league clubhouses from time to time, too, and I, I don't, I don't mean this in particular, but just let me extrapolate from there. Um, Like what's different about having been in a major league clubhouse too and in a major league environment um, and in an NFL environment and in an NBA environment um, coming up as a newspaper reporter? uh, What did you learn about being in those types of settings um, that maybe people that have spent a career in the minor leagues have never experienced and and, um, when you get to the major leagues can be a little bit of a culture shock?
1: I think the main thing is just the quantity of media that is in a major league clubhouse and compared to a minor league clubhouse when, you know, put it this way, our clubhouse is not open to the media. If someone wants an interview, then myself or more likely our PR guys, they do it 99% of the time. I kind of take on that rule on the road. Well, go up to the player and bring them outside for an interview outside the batting cages or, you know, by the dugout after batting practice or something like that. Whereas when you're in a major league clubhouse, there's reporters all over the place. Yeah. And I've also learned the difference between the difference between a one on one interview and a group interview, and sort of the unwritten rules about when you crash somebody's one on one interview and why you would do so. Um, you know, as a newspaper reporter, or just as a reporter in general, I shouldn't say newspaper since there's very few of them left, is the pack mentality. And I remember as a reporter, I wanted to avoid the pack mentality. I don't want to follow the pack from player to player. I'm trying to get something that my competitor does not have. Mm. I want to have something that San Francisco Chronicle does not have. So I might wait. We call it waiting out the pack, waiting until everyone in the pack is gone or the pack goes one direction. I go the opposite direction to try to get somebody one-on-one when nobody else is there because I feel like athletes are more, are more likely to be just relaxed in, when it's one-on-one and they're more likely to tell you something differently than they will when there's 12 microphones that are around them. I think they're much more guarded and much more cliched when there's a lot of people around them. That's a whole lot more difficult to do nowadays since clubhouses are larger and larger and there's more spaces in the back for them to, to relax and to hide. Um, so I, I think that's the number one thing It's just the quantity of people Look, I'm not competing for anybody to get my pregame interview every day. (laughs) Like it's just me and maybe and maybe a couple of other people, you know, from a TV station or or the local newspaper does a really good job of covering us. Whereas when you're in the major leagues, there's a lot of competition to try to get the person that you want and get them when you need them. And I think that's the biggest culture shock is just the quantity of media that's involved. But on the other hand, it also makes it a whole lot easier to get information because you can be very lazy as a broadcaster in the major leagues, because pretty much any question that you have, somebody is asking that question and they're either putting it on Twitter or they're writing about it, or you're able to learn it from somebody. Mm. Whereas with me, like if I'm wondering, okay, why'd that person leave the game? You know, what injury was that? The only, the only way that I'm going to find out is if I, is that if I find out myself in the major leagues, there, there's 20 different people who are going to tell you what happened to that player.
0: Uh, you didn't spend a ton of time in the minor leagues before you got back to the majors, though. Uh, after you left the first time, correct? Was it? Yes, it was only, pretty, only one year. Pretty quick. Um, what was uh, what was making the jump back to uh, a major league uh, market and major league coverage and working for the Dodgers of all teams um, and and the broadcasters that are obviously around that team? You talked about Vin Scully earlier. Um, what was that experience like?
1: It was at first terrifying and <laughs> later exhilarating. And, um, you know, that, that's another example of where I didn't get that job because I was so magnificent. My one year in Modesto, Mm. I got that job once again, because of my work as a newspaper reporter at that time, the Dodgers had switched from one radio station to the next, that new radio station wanted to put its own stamp on its pre and post game coverage, the the non-network portion of their coverage. And so they were looking for they were looking for new voices and they decided that they wanted to hire two people. They wanted to have somebody who was the host, who would be the primary person doing this. It's more like the pre-pre and the post-post. And then they wanted somebody who could be the reporter for the Los Angeles Dodgers radio network. And so the reason why I got the job, the reason why they were even interested in me is they felt that my my background as a reporter would make me good as a radio reporter and that because i'd spent one year in modesto i knew how to talk enough that i could be able to handle this role and then from there like the role continued to expand from file things that the network can use obtain sound that the network can use obtain sound that the broadcasters could use in los angeles and then it also became the co-host of the call-in show and again ken levine he was the host And I was whatever you want to call me, the reporter, or you want to, like, there was a lot of times that we would start the broadcast and Ken would be on the air solo while I was still in the clubhouse getting sound, getting information, so that it would lead to a more well rounded Dodger talk show because I could, you know, add actual sound and actual reporting to it. And so it took on a variety of different roles from there. But again, to go back to your question, at first I didn't even I wasn't even sure if I wanted the job because I remember thinking, you know, I didn't I didn't leave the newspaper business after 10 years to get into play-by-play and then after 1 year now I'm going to now I'm going to co-host a call-in show and I'm going to be a reporter again. I initially was not even interested in the job and then I started to think a little bit more about it and I realized that you only get so many opportunities to work in the number 2 market and to work uh alongside, because again, I was not a Dodgers employee. I was a radio station employee, but you know, most people considered me a Dodgers employee. But to be a part of the Dodgers brand, and I just felt like that that would lead to a lot of opportunities for me down the line. I always felt like this is not going to be the, a job for me for 10 years, for 20 years, and this is going to be a stepping stone job for me that's going to lead me somewhere. I don't know where, but I know this job is going is not going to be a long-term job for me. Um, In terms of, you know, being around the Dodgers, that wasn't that big a deal to me. Even though I grew up in the Bay Area and, you know, my family members would chant, you know, beat L.A. and all that kind of stuff. um, Like, I I didn't care that much, you know. Um, I I was no longer concerned about being a fan. I learned very quickly in college that, that it's not about being a fan. That my loyalty is to the story and to the job and to who's paying me. And some members of my family were um they didn't understand why I could take that job and I was like, Come on, like really? Like what's wrong with you? Like you realize how big the brand the Dodgers are, do you realize it's the number two market? Do you realize what an opportunity this is? Like, who cares that you're a Giants fan? I was more of an A's <laughs> fan as a kid anyways, but still like 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 that that never crossed my mind that I didn't want this job because I grew up in the Bay Area. My doubts were: Am I really ready for the number two market? Can I really do this? And do I really want to take a job that's not play-by-play? Um, but then I would say, within a couple of days after taking the job, I realized that this was really smart. I'm glad I took the job just because the, the number of doors that opened and the number of experiences that I had were to this day are just blow my mind.
0: Uh, what'd you learn, if anything? I, I don't like how much time did you get to spend with with a guy like Vin?
1: Uh, very little one-on-one time with Vin. Um, like my, I, what I did learn though, I remember one time learning that um, that Vin always took the second bus from the hotel, and Vin usually got on the bus about ten fifteen minutes before it left. And so I remembered one day thinking like, okay, if I just get on the bus and I sit close to him, then I might be able to talk to Vin. And you know, because I didn't want to bother Vin. I feel like there were so many people who wanted a piece of him constantly that I wanted to give him some peace, but Every once in a while, I would make sure that I got on the bus. Now, normally, I would either take a taxi to the ballpark or I'd walk to the ballpark. I'd get there way earlier than the second bus. But sometimes, if I was on the second bus, then I knew that it might be some time that I could spend hanging out with Vin and, and picking his brain and just talking to him. And, and I tried really hard to not, like, oh, hey, can you critique me? Hey, what do you think? Like, I, I just wanted to be his colleague. I didn't want I didn't want to um, to, to bombard him with, Help me out with make me better broadcaster. With you know, like I didn't. Be, I tried yeah, just, really just hard not to be a fanboy. Basically, yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though I was a total fanboy, <laughs> I didn't want to look like a fanboy. I just wanted to try as much as I could just be his colleague and just hang out with him. I
0: guess what did you? Uh, what could you observe? Just like, are there things that you could see about the way that he carried himself and the way that he did that? What he did that just from like thirty thousand feet, you can be like, okay, that makes sense. That's why he's good. That's why this is that.
1: You know, the the main thing, actually, is just the way that he treats people. It, it always blew my mind that he knew the name of everybody in the press box. He knew all the security guards. He knew all the ushers. He knew all the cooks. He knew everybody's name, and he would always smile and say hello to them. That's number one. Number two, the number of times that somebody would get brought into the booth to meet Vin, they'd want their picture taken. And inevitably, people would say pretty close to the same thing about how much – They've listened to him their entire life and how he's the soundtrack of their childhood or the soundtrack of their summer and how they would have the game on. And they would, and all the stories would be very, very similar. Mm. And yet Vin would not roll his eyes. He would smile and treat everybody as if it's the first time that he ever heard this. And he would thank them. He would thank them for listening. He would thank them for sharing their story with him. And it would be very easy for someone of Vin's caliber to, like, I I just need a break today. Like, I just need a break today. Just let me prepare for the broadcast. You know, do I really need somebody else coming into the booth telling me the same thing that I hear every day? But he did not do that. He was was very generous with his time. And I think that's the biggest thing that stood out to me was just how he treated people who could not help him. You know, the random fan coming into the booth is not going to help him. I'm not going to help him. He's Vince Scully. He doesn't really need any help, but he would still be generous with his time for all of us.
0: Um, you, uh, you took—it's hard to jump off of that to anything else. But uh, you, you, you took that experience and uh, did eventually get back into doing play-by-play with the job you have now uh, in Albuquerque. Um, how did—and again, this is like how one thing influences another. Uh, once you got back into play-by-play, you're in AAA baseball. You only had that one year in Modesto, but how were you? How did you feel better equipped for a play-by-play job when you got back into one um, when you took over with the Isotopes?
1: Yeah, there's a lot of different things that, that, that made me so much better. You know, just sitting in a studio. So I didn't travel to every road game, but I traveled to most road games. And on the games that I did not, I would sit in the studio and I would listen to whether it was Vin or Charlie Steiner or Rick one or whomever was, was on the broadcast that day. And I, I know I learned a lot just sitting in a studio listening. I learned, a, I learned probably more than anything else about how to put together a pregame show and how to put together a postgame show mm-hmm. and how do you sound. And the importance of of having a game plan with your pregame show, not just going on the air and just winging it, but timing things out and making sure that you're doing things. To go back to one of your other questions, I I probably care more about this than I should, but whenever it comes to my pregame show – I, I try to think of it like a journalist, like what makes sense? What should I be talking about based on what happened yesterday or what else is going on in baseball today? Sure. Or like what what's the storyline? I want to have a pregame show that is about that storyline. So I can't always do that, but whenever possible, I'm trying to think of something that journalistically fits this story. That's not just this random topic. Can't always do that. But the way that I structure – Pre-game show, I I try to make that a big part of, of what I do. And and that's journalism. Um, you know, so I actually had a year in between the Dodgers job and my current job. And again, so I lose the job the same way that I got the job. I got the job because the Dodgers left one radio station and went to another. I lost the job because the Dodgers left my station and went to another station and that station wanted their own stamp on things. So I spent about 15 months Hustling to try to do anything that I could. I did play-by-play of softball, of volleyball, of high school, of college. I did. I was the analyst of high school basketball. I did pub trivia. Um, there's a lot of different things. I went to workshops and learned a lot of things about how to do how to do interviews and voice work. I felt like if I'm not going to be working full time, I really need. To utilize these 15 months. I didn't think it was going to be 15 months. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to use that time as much as I could to make myself better and to be better prepared. And so I think that all of those things, doing a variety of different levels and a variety of different sports and doing them for a fly-by-night internet company, of doing it for a fill-in for a college radio station, I mean, doing a college event for their, their station, all of those things made me better equipped and ready for the job when I got here. But, but even that said, when you haven't done 140 games in a while, and when you, I work solo, I don't have, I don't have an engineer. I don't have an analyst. I don't have a spotter. I do. I'm a one man band. And when you have not done that in a while, like that is a different beast when you're suddenly doing every pitch, every inning, every game. Yeah, that is that that takes a while before you totally feel like okay, uh, I got my sea legs under me right now.
0: Um, tell me about your perspectives on play-by-play. Now, obviously, you've gotten several years under your belt um, as the voice of the Isotopes. Uh, what to you makes a good and like beyond? the basics of inning and score and, and all those things that, that we always uh, try to talk about. But like, what's a next level thing for you that you've discovered, Hey, this is what makes great baseball to me. And, and this is what I strive to to do every night.
1: So I have a, a post-it note on my booth that says, let them hear you smiling, which is impossible, right? Like they can't, they can't hear you smile. They can hear you <laughs> laugh, but you can only see somebody smile. Right. Um, but the idea is that if I'm smiling and and this goes back to one of the workshops that I did when I was unemployed in Los Angeles, and I remember I was, I was, I tried so hard to just be this, to be this focused person who knew how to ask questions and was serious because I was a journalist and, and I really want to get into the heart of the matter and ask a question. And, and so uh, we would do like these different exercises and then they would, they would show you. And the instructor looked at me. He's like, Josh, why don't you smile? And I was like, oh, you know, because, you know, I'm I'm really – he's like, no. He's like, this is television. He's like, smile. So then he says, all right, so do it this way. Do it your way. Now do it my way now overly exaggerate smiling. So I would do it both ways. And then he was like, okay, now find somewhere in the middle where you're comfortable smiling and just see and listen how that changes your voice when you're smiling. And this is an activity that anybody can do no matter whether they're in sales or whether they're a teacher or whatever. Um, You know, put a camera on yourself, turn the iPhone around, and say it one way in a serious way and say it one way with an over-the-top, exaggerated smile on your face and then find somewhere in the middle and just listen to how that changes your voice. That's interesting. Because if if someone is listening to you, whether it's 15 minutes while they're on the way to the grocery store or whether they're listening to you for the entire nine innings – you want them to feel like this is my buddy. You know, this is Marty. This is my friend, Marty. Who's talking to me for three hours. This is my friend, Bill, who's talking to me for three hours. And so if you can like be happy with what you're doing, have joy in what you're doing. And so if you're smiling, it's going to, it's going to come across with whatever it is that you're saying, whether you're describing a double play, whether you're describing the fifth home run that your team has given up that day, whether you're describing the large crowd on the 4th of July, whatever it is that you're describing, it's going to sound better if you're simply smiling, even though the audience can't see you smiling, even though they can't hear you smiling, it's going to make a difference in your voice. I know that Vin Scully would always say, just be yourself. And I was like, well, what if I don't know who myself is (laughs) 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 trying to figure out who myself
0: is? That seems like a larger, yeah,
1: (laughs) yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. that's, (laughs) That's a much larger question. And, um, and so I what I think that I've learned is just enjoy the moment. Enjoy enjoy like what it is that you're doing. And you can still be serious and intense in the ninth inning when it's a close game and you should be. You should not be that way in the first inning. You should almost be like a master of ceremonies, like the host of a banquet in the first inning who's welcoming people and giving them the storylines and letting them know what to expect tonight. And then in the middle innings, depending on what the score is and depending on what's going on, is when you can start to add other things to the, to the broadcast. And then by the 8th or the ninth inning, either you're locked in on every pitch and every movement because it's a close game and could be determined with any pitch, or you're just trying to find something that's entertaining to talk about in between pitches because it's a 10-run game. And we have a lot of those in the Pacific Coast. League. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think the main thing that I've just learned is just is the, the, how much the smile on your face impacts how your voice sounds over the course of three hours and an entire season.
0: You have gotten a chance to broadcast as a play by play announcer in the major leagues as well. Um but it's a little different, so I wanted to ask you about that before I let you go. Um what is it like broadcasting a major league baseball game in virtual reality?
1: Uh, technically I was not the play-by-play announcer for that one. I was the, uh, I was the, the third wheel, if you will. Okay. It was, uh, it was a, it was the three person broadcast and I was brought in once again to be like the journalist, to be like the news guy, even though that's not really what I do anymore, but <laughs> that's kind of what I was brought in to do. And, um, so that is very much a, um, I mean, we're, I mean, that's, uncharted waters. All all three of us are trying to figure it out. The director was trying to figure it out. I I think the main thing is don't treat it like it's a normal broadcast. So what the NBA has tried to do with these players only broadcast where it feels like it's just two guys, two former players sitting around talking. That was what we tried to do is just, it's just a, it's just a conversation among these three guys who come from three different backgrounds that are going to give you some background details about what's going on. And then occasionally there would be shots where the virtual reality cameras show you something that you don't ever see, and that's and then it's just like wow,
0: like like what? <laughs> like that,
1: that's your job as a broadcaster. Yeah, like what? Um, so the, so the cameras were set up at the end of the dugouts, like atop the bat racks. There was they were set up like down the lines, and so it, it, it's just kind of rare that you would see like the left fielder tracking a ball like right in front of you, or you know, it looks like it looks like you're in the left field stands and you're kind of watching the game from there. So like the, the technology was really neat and I don't know what has happened with it. I don't, I think they just did it last year and have not done it this year, but, but it's basically just trying to tell interesting stories and, and in your own mind, like you see all these different monitors. And so I was kind of, constantly toggling between all the different camera angles anyways and then you're trying to tell the audience hey if you switch to such and such camera you can see this or hey there's a really good shot of this huh. which also made it really confusing because the other two guys might be looking at a totally Something different, different. Camera shot as that's well, wild right and then the director's trying to like follow as well with like what's the main shot so it was um yeah, it was really fun. I would have loved to, to have the opportunity to do more and kind of get into a more of a groove and to know exactly how to do that. But the main part of it was, wow, look at this technology. This technology is amazing.
0: It's like a choose-your-own-adventure book, but they went to page 10 and you're on page 34. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, Josh, if, if people want to find more of you, if they want to listen to the isotopes, uh, if they want to read your books, um, how do they get more information on you?
1: Probably the easiest way is to start with the website, which is joshuasushan.com. Common spelling on Sushan. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, com is, I mean, if you just type my name into Google, you're going to find way more than you would ever want to find. Uh, I have an uncle who says that I'm hogging all of the Google pages of the last name Sushan, Mm -hmm. That it's hard to find something about any other human being with the last name of Sushan because I'm hogging all of the page views. It's fair. So sorry to my Uncle Steve. Yeah. Yeah. but I mean, shoot! I mean, yeah. I mean, I've podcasts which I haven't done in a long time, and yeah, I have books and pretty much. If you just type my name into Google, there's gonna be a whole lot of stuff that that's gonna pop up. That's gonna um, alert you to how to find broadcasts. What's I mean, the, I get What's the, the radio broadcast?
0: The podcast Life but Life on the Seams between the seams. Life around the seams. Around the seams. I heard I caught a couple of them yes, uh, yesterday. So if, if check those out, if you if you have a chance as well, they're on your website too. So.
1: Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean that that started as that started as okay. We have this uh, again. I'm doing tons of research. It actually started with a, with a pitcher of ours by the name of David Holman. So David Holman's father Brian Holman pitched in the major leagues, and his uncle Brad Holman pitched in the major leagues,
0: pitching coach of the and, uh, Myrtle Beach Pelicans. At one point. Yeah.
1: At one point, now he's the pitching coach for the Fresno Grizzlies, oh. the Nationals' uh, AAA team. So David joins our team. And I remember thinking, uh, you know, so I'm doing my background about him and I'm learning about, first of all, his dad and, and his uncle. And then I realized that when David was approximately uh, nine or 10 years old, he was on a ski lift and he fell like 50 feet. and He nearly died and he had a lacerated spleen and a concussion and all these different things. And he nearly dies. And oh, by the way, that was on his parents anniversary. And then as the doctors are like Checking him out, they're doing a CAT scan of his head to see if he still has a concussion, and it turns out he has a tumor in his brain that's growing, but they can't remove it yet. They they have to wait basically until he gets older and the tumor gets bigger and his head gets bigger before he can have brain surgery.
0: That's comforting. So
1: he has brain surgery uh, a few years later, which, again, it's very easy to die from brain surgery. So he nearly dies from that. And then there was stuff with his sister and, and like like the whole family first of all, the family's incredible. I love them all to death, and they're super generous with their time. It's just, just salt of the earth nice people. And I remember thinking, How in the world do I tell this guy's story during a five minute interview for the Bank of the West on Deck Show? <laughs> or or how do I even begin to tell this story in between the two one pitch that's low and outside, right? <laughs> Like there, there's certain stories that you can tell, and then there's other stories that are darn near impossible to tell on a broadcast, even if the broadcast is three hours long. Because inevitably, once you start telling some story, then five pitches are going to be swung at in a row, and, and like you keep starting and stopping a story, and it just doesn't make sense. And it's especially when it's something as is deep and, and as emotional as is those stories. And I remember just thinking, I want an avenue to tell these stories properly, where I'm not jamming it into a five-minute pregame interview, or I'm not jamming it in between pitches. I want to be able to tell stories in depth. And I knew that I was tired of writing books, that I didn't want to write any books for a while, and I felt like this was a good way for me to do some long-form, I guess it's a long-form journalism. It's basically just me interviewing people and finding out interesting things about their life and their, their careers and, and I try to focus as much of it as possible on stuff that happens away from the field although inevitably you end up talking about stuff that happens on the field so that, that was the idea behind the podcast and again that, again that goes back to the journalist in me that's, that's probably never going to leave me.
0: Josh uh, I appreciate you coming on and, uh, and doing this uh, I know it's always a random shot in the dark sometimes uh, so, so thank you for saying yes and, uh, and traveling down some, uh, some stories with us
1: yeah uh, my pleasure Joel thanks for the invitation this is fun
0: all right, that is Josh Sushan here on PXP Cast, the voice of the Albuquerque Isotopes, also in the New Mexico Lobos women's basketball team. That is where his attention will be turned. Coming up in about a month's time now, he is also an author of uh, a couple baseball related books, a non baseball related book, "Murder in Pleasanton," true crime, and uh, we, we mentioned "Life Around the Seams," the podcast. Do check it out. It's kind of there's a handful of cool conversations in there um, with some really interesting baseball people, uh, some names I hadn't seen in a while, Aaron Sealy. Go Seattle Mariners. He was on my fantasy team as a kid. Uh, There's some cool conversations you can check out. Uh, His website is joshuasushan.com. Again, that's S-U-C-H-O-N, joshuasushan.com. You can find those books. Uh, You can also find his coaching services. If you're a young, up-and-coming broadcaster, Uh, he does all for that as well. So uh, give him a holler if you enjoyed the conversation, and we will see you back here next week on PXPCast. We're
1: out. And that will do it from St. Louis where the score is inconclusive.